our topic, the importance of the regular principle of worship, or what does it mean to be truly reformed? What does it mean to be reformed? What distinguishes the reformed churches from the Lutherans and the Episcopalians? And it's very important. I'm going to read just a little bit from Deuteronomy 12. 29 to 32, when the Lord your God cuts you off from before you the nations which go, you go into to possess and displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not inserted to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their God, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? I will also do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abomination of the Lord which he hates he has done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters to their, in the fire to their gods. And here's the, uh, the critical text, verse 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. They were not allowed to add to God's word. The importance of the regular principle of worship. Uh, there's a great crisis of declension and covenant breaking among Reformed communities today in the area of worship. What used to be one of the greatest achievements of the Reformation and the Reformed faith, the regular principle of worship is currently virtually dead in most confessing Reformed communions. It's not put into practice. And the regular principle, just for you who don't know what it is, it's this principle that we're not allowed to do anything in the worship of God uh, unless we can prove it from Scripture. There must be proof. You can't simply make stuff up and say, well, it's not, an, it's not condemned, I can do it. You have to prove it. <clears throat> it's currently dead in confessing Reformed communions with only minor exceptions. Uh, for example, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, very small. The Free Church continuing. The Reformed Presbytery, that is the Steelites. The Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, uh, however, they're very inconsistent, probably the most inconsistent of the ones I've named. Uh, the vast majority of them celebrate Christmas, which is a Roman Catholic holiday not taught in Scripture. And the vast majority of churches serve grape juice in communion, which is clearly not taught in Scripture and is a violation of the regular principle. <clears throat> and all of these communions are relatively small. The PCA is humongous compared to uh, the PCA is way bigger than all of them put together. <clears throat> Pastors and scholars who openly reject the print regular principle are not disciplined and remain popular speakers and writers. John Frame, Doug Wilson, Steve Slissel, James Jordan, Peter Lighthart, Jeffrey Myers. Lighthart, Jordan, and Myers uh, were PCA pastors. I don't know if uh, Jordan and, My and Lighthart still is, are. Um, now, John Frame, of course, would argue that he fully holds to the regular principle. He doesn't openly deny it. However, in his popular book, Worship in Spirit and in Truth, 1996, he misrepresents the original confessional position. Uh, one, he misrepresents the original position. Two, he completely redefines the historic definition of this principle. Three, he uses his new definition to justify many human traditions practiced in the OPC and PCA. And four, then offers his case for modern contemporary and for lack of a better term, celebrative worship, the worship of like the assemblies of God and megachurches. Jordan, Lightheart, Wilson, and Myers want to go toward Canterbury, Rome, or Constantinople, while Frame would have us go to, toward the assemblies of God. Frame, following Jordan, accuses the old confessional Puritan practice of worship as being, quote, minimalist. He got that from Jordan. And uh, I critique that in my book at the end of my, I think it's the end of my Christmas book. James Jordan, a PCA minister, I don't know, he might be in Crack now. Uh, he might have left and gone to Crack, I don't know, but he was a PCA minister for many years. Is the father of the high church humanistic sacramentalism that has influenced Lightheart, Peter Lightheart, Doug Wilson, Jeffrey Myers, and many others. And his writings have led to a number of reform uh, professors back to the papal and Eastern Orthodox communions. In his uh, highly creative anti-reform book called The Sociology of the Church, Tyler, Texas, 1986, Jordan writes this. Listen to this. Biblical teaching as a whole is quite favorable to Christmas as an annual ecclesiastical festival. Where? 
where? Continuing, as I study scripture, I find that the Lutheran and Anglican churches are more biblical in their worship and the context than Baptist and Reformed churches. So he likes the Lutheran and the Anglican. And if you go to one of their churches, it's, it looks Lutheran slash Anglican in its outlook. Despite some problems. What I am saying is that the custom of crossing oneself is not unscriptural. And the conservative church at large should give it some thought. And of course, David Shelton, the disciple of Jordan, argues for incense in his commentary on the book of Revelation. Hey, they got incense at him. Of course, it's all symbolic. It refers to prayers. Uh, he, he argues it. And he, he quotes his paradigm, which he got from Jordan, is he quotes all these liturgical guys from the Eastern Orthodox Church. <clears throat> Here's another one. Offeratory, that is the giving of tithes, is not a collection, but an act of self-immolation. Thus the offering plates are brought down to the minister who holds them up to God, heave offering, and gives them to him. Here's another one. The whole personal priesthood of all believers means not only congregational participation, which requires prayer books, but um, also holistic dueling. It means singing, falling down, kneeling, dancing, clapping, processions, and so forth. Now, how does he arrive at all these conclusions? And keep in mind, he's super, he's had a huge influence on a bunch of ministers in the PCA and some in the OPC, and of course on the Episcopal Church, the Reformed Episcopal Church. <clears throat> and he does this by uh, his very imaginative interpretive maximalism, which is really subjectivism to a large extent, <clears throat> and um, general overarching principles. When he discusses the Puritans of the regular principle, he argues against a caricature or a straw man. And one of his early articles, I used to, I don't know what happened to my file. I had a file on Jordan, a big, huge file, because I used to get his newsletter. He argued that if you believe in the regular principle, you can't eat it in a Chinese restaurant because the Bible doesn't allow eating it. The Bible says nothing about eating at a Chinese restaurant. Well, he clearly either doesn't understand the regular principle or is misrepresenting it. We're talking about worship ordinances and elements. We're not talking about audio, things that are common to human actions in societies. <clears throat> Jordan and his followers are openly mocks the regular principle, refers to his concept of worship as based on, excuse me, this is Doug Wilson. Wilson who's a follower of James Jordan, Peter Lightheart, and Jeffrey Myers. He published Jeffrey Myers' big, thick book on worship, which is absolutely anti-reformed. I, I did a critique of it years ago. It's on, on uh, Sermon Audio. Who openly mocks the regular principle, refers to his concept of worship as based on, quote, high church Puritan thinking. He loves to refer to himself as a Puritan, when he's not even close to being a Puritan. That's from his little booklet, A Primer on Worship and Reformation, Recovering the High Church Puritan. <clears throat> In the book, Wilson's against, it's a small book, against individualism and criticizes the crazy worship practices of modern evangelical churches, but offers no solid principles that would actually reform worship. And it, it, it's the worst thing I've ever read by, by Wilson, and I've read pretty much everything he's written. And it's the worst thing. It's just basically, these are my ideas. There's, there's almost virtually no exegesis. Sacramentalism and high church liturgical practices may appear more reverent than modern evangelical rock and roll jam fest, humanistic entertainment, but without the regular principle, it is one church tradition versus another. It boils down to preference, tradition, and at most you can say, well, our worship is more reverent than your worship. So, so much for that. <clears throat> And calling his worship high church Puritan uh, thinking is similar to asserting that one holds to a Roman Catholic Protestantism. There's nothing Reformed or Puritan in the doctrine of worship that originated with the interpretive maximalism of James Jordan. In fact, their, their service much more resembles a Lutheran service than it does a Reformed service. And they, they wear white robes. They're wearing white robes now uh, after the confession of sin by the minister in the opening prayer. Um, he holds up his hands and he proclaims that the whole congregation has now been forgiven 
absolution. That comes right out of Lutheranism. Totally unreformed. Prayer books, if you have people that are very ignorant and you want to have a prayer book as a guide to help people learn how to pray, that's great. But to, to have them and use them every week, week after week after week, when people are mature Christians is totally unnecessary and, and, and not needed at all. Now, in order to find what it means to be truly Reformed or genuinely Puritan, we need to look at the history of the Reformation. The confessional statements of the Reformed churches on worship, primarily the Westminster Standards, the actual practices of the Reformed churches before their decline, and the evidence from Scripture. We will see that the ab abandonment of the regular principle of worship in Reformed circles, either explicitly or implicitly, that is, they all acknowledge it and they give it lip service, they acknowledge it, but they don't practice it, is unbiblical and leading many in the professing Reformed camp toward either a high church Lutheran Episcopal human traditions or the hedonistic, entertainment-oriented worship of modern church growth evangelical congregations. That's the direction that's going on. And I could take you to, oh, I've been to OPC churches. I was one in, in one in Michigan, a very large church, one of the biggest OPC churches I've ever seen. And they didn't even use a hymnal. They had an overhead projector, and they sang campfire ditties like, like, just like the Assemblies of God or Church Growth Church. And they had a full band with a drummer and a bass player and all that. No difference between their worship whatsoever and typical evangelical church growth church. And there's also churches I could take you to in the PCA uh, that have, uh, that was the OPC, that, that have, uh, you would think you were an Episcopal church where the pastor's wearing a white robe and they're doing a full liturgy and so forth. <clears throat> so the purpose of the study is see, to see the need to return to the achievements of our spiritual forefathers, for example, Calvin, Knox, Melville, Gillespie, Rutherford, etc., because their views were thoroughly biblical. This is not a we-like-tradition sermon. This is, this is what the Bible teaches and we have to submit to it. And the original Presbyterians and Reformed people and Puritans, Calvin, Knox, held to it and argued for it very effectively, but they, they, their view has been abandoned. The regular principle is simply the consistent, full application of sola scriptura to the sphere of worship. James Begg says this, and he was a uh, free church of Scotland, and then he left and joined the Free Presbyterian Church, I believe in the 1800s. Although we shall not venture to apportion the relative importance of great principles, it may be safely be affirmed that nothing can be more important than questions connected with the acceptable worship of God. And that's from his little book, Anarchy and Worship, a great little book. Well, let's look at historical considerations briefly. We have to learn some history here. In order to understand the great importance of the reform wing of the uh, of what the Reform wing of the Protestant Reformation achieved, in their Reformation of worship, we need to look at some church history. Now, the two original branches of what we call Protestant evangelicalism, now I know the word evangelical now is kind of used in a more narrow sense of, you know, basically Baptist and non-denominational people, but it used to mean people who believed in the gospel. Uh, that is, churches which recover the true gospel of justification by faith, alone, apart from the works of the law, are the Lutheran and formed communions. They're the original two. And this goes way back. Zwingli gets started, who's where we get the reform camp. Zwingli gets started in 1516, Luther in 1517. Zwingli did not get his stuff from Luther. Zwingli came up with his views independently, and he, of course, he agreed with Luther totally on justification by faith alone. A little later, 1534, the Anglican or Episcopal Church was formed, which held to an evangelical view of justification, but in the area of worship occupied a position between Romanism and Protestantism. And they flat out say in the 39 articles, they flat out say, oh yeah, we churchmen, church authorities, we have the right to make up ceremonies. We have the right to make up holy days. We have the right to do this as long as they don't are not explicitly contradicted by uh, Scripture. We have the right to make up stuff. So they're actually more honest than the Lutherans. The Lutheran churches followed the teachings of Luther, while the Reformed churches can be traced back to the labors of Zwingli, who God rose up virtually almost simultaneously with Luther, and then a little later John Calvin. Now, we don't have a lot of writings from Zwingli. Zwingli died in the prime of his life, 
fighting in a war with Roman Catholics, and he died in battle, unfortunately. And then a little later, John Calvin, the first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion, was pu published anonymously in March 1536, and it was pretty thin, kept getting bigger. Calvin converted toward the end of 1533. Now, how does he go from just being converted to putting out a book a year later? <laughs> well, the, Calvin had been trained in scholastics, and Calvin had studied all the stuff that would be necessary for the priesthood and everything. So Calvin knew he was like the perfect man for the job. In the early days of the Reformation, all Protestants agreed on three fundamental principles. Number one, the sacred scriptures are the sole authority for faith and life, doctrine, and practice. What are we to believe and how we are to live? Our ethical standard comes directly from scripture. We don't make up our own ethical standard. Our doctrines must come directly from Scripture. That is not like the Roman Catholic view, which you have Scripture plus tradition. And they teach that tradition is equal to Scripture. In, in reality, it's, in their view, it's superior. The sacred Scriptures are the sole authority of the rule of faith and doctrine and practice. And number two, we are saved solely by grace through faith, which lays hold of the perfect salvation achieved by Christ. Works do not contribute one iota to our salvation. We're saved solely by the instrument of faith, Christ achieves salvation, we receive it as a gift. Number three, the priesthood of all believers. You don't have to go to a priest and confess your sins to a priest. You confess your sins directly to God through Jesus Christ. What strongly separates the Reformed churches from the Lutheran was their much more consistent application of sola scriptura to the government and worship of the church. And of course, the, there was a huge difference on uh, communion, the sacraments. Uh, Luther holding to consubstantiation, Zwingli holding to something in between Calvin and the typical Baptist view that it's simply a memorial. He, he said you're spiritually present with Christ. Zwingli's been criticized, I think, unfairly. His view was not as bad as it's been represented. But Luther wouldn't even shake hands with Zwingli. And when they met, he wrote on the table, uh, uh, this is my body. So Luther was very uncooperative because they, they were trying to see if we can get the the Lutherans and the Reformed together. And Luther was a dogmatic jerk on this issue, and Luther was wrong. Zwingli was right. Luther was wrong. Calvin, later on, will try to develop a, a view of communion uh, in between Zwingli and Luther, and I think Calvin's view is kind of bizarre, actually, but I know people love it. But in Calvin's view, uh, you're transported to the throne room to be in the presence of Christ. And, uh, but it's complicated. We'll, we'll ignore that for now, but it's interesting. <clears throat> Luther focused on a reformation of faith and doctrine, but in worship only eliminated those things which were clearly in violation of Scripture. The Roman Catholic Mass, articular confession, you know, confessing to a priest, pilgrimages, the sacerdotal priesthood, the saints as mediators, etc., etc. The, the obviously unscriptural stuff that the Roman Catholic Church was swept aside. But the other stuff that wasn't obviously unscriptural, they kept. If a practice was not explicitly forbidden by Scripture, for example, praying and bowing before statues, then the Church can use that practice in public worship. So he had a very conservative approach. His Reformation was primarily in soteriology, or salvation. Modern Reformed pastors who reject the regular principle of Calvin, Knox, and all the Reformed symbols call this uh, the informed principle of worship. In other words, we follow the general principles of Scripture, and we get to determine our own worship as long as it's not condemned anywhere. We can do it. You know, you, you, know, you can have dancing in church, but you can't have naked dancing. You know, I mean, that kind of stuff. The concept of worship has declared uh, has dis this concept of worship has displaced the views of Calvin and the Reformed symbols in the vast majority of modern conservative Presbyterian churches. Now I know they'll deny this, but it's true. I have a really good commentary by uh, on Exodus from the pastor of Tenth Presbyterian Church, the, the church where me and Andrea, and my wife, met in the early '80s uh, when John James Montgomery Boyce was there. 
and he he'll have some. If there's a regular principle passage in there, he'll say some really great things about the regular principle. But then he'll also say that things like Christmas are wonderful, and we should all celebrate Christmas. So there's a, a gross inconsistency with a lot of people. Well, let's look briefly at the Lutheran position, because what's going on now among Reformed people is really among the vast majority of Reformed people, is really the Lutheran position. It's not the Reformed position. The Lutheran position is that the Church should unite around the Gospel and the sacraments, but that worship should be allowed to be diverse and different as churches follow their own ecclesiastical traditions. And like I said, in the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, founded by Machen and, and others, I forget the year, I don't know, 29, 32, and then um, the, the PCA, which was uh, branched off the Southern Presbyterian Church in, I believe, 1973, um, who both give lip service to the regular principle, you can find virtually everything under the sun. There is no uniformity of worship at all, as where in 1650, every church you went to in Scotland, had the worship was identical. Because if the Bible teaches something, that's what we ought to do. In other words, we don't let our culture or our imagination influence worship. <clears throat> Here's the, the Augsburg Confession. This is our first big confession. Uh, 1530 says this. And under the true unity of the church, it is sufficient to agree concerning the doctrine of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. And, because of, and of course, because they did not agree with the Reformed on the nature of the sacraments, either Calvin or Zwingli. Although Luther said some complimentary things about Calvin's view, because he saw Calvin was trying to move toward his position, they never got together. And the reason they wanted to get together was persecution by Roman Catholics. That was one reason. Plus, unity is great if you can do it faithfully on true doctrine. Continuing, nor is it necessary that human traditions, rites, or ceremonies instituted by men should be alike everywhere. That's Article 7 on the, of the Church. So if men are given a creative, inventive role in determining rites or ceremonies, then uniformity in worship, in the worship of Christ, regarding, uh, in, the, in the worship of the church, worship of Christ regarding worship is impossible. This guy has this idea. This guy has that idea. This church likes liturgical dancing and women with tambourines going up and down the aisles. This church, I watched a thing on worship years ago on the Southern Baptist Convention. They have churches where during the worship service, there's a guy sculpting, uh, making a sculpture. There's a guy painting a picture. There's, over here, there's a dancer. So you're not going to have uniformity. You're going to have multiformity, and you're going to have virtually an infinite variety of worship forms. Man-made innovations, as long as they do not obviously violate a specific command of Scripture, are perfectly fine. They're perfectly fine. In other words... And here's the, here's the issue. And this is what all the evangelicals believe today. What the Bible does not forbid, disallow, or declare to be wrong or sinful, is automatically permitted. That sounds pretty good on the surface. But it leaves man, man a huge area of autonomy to make up stuff. What this means is that human inventions or traditions are allowed in worship unless one can find a prohibition against that practice. If the church elders decide to celebrate Ash Wednesday, as uh, Peter Lightheart does in his church, he celebrates Ash Wednesday, it's a Roman Catholic Holy Day, or institute liturgical painting, dancing, or sculpting during public worship, then such things must be accepted as biblical. These things are not forbidden and consequently are perfectly acceptable. If you want to have a church calendar, if you want to have Christmas, if you want to make up a holy day, let's have a, a holy day dedicated to Peter. Let's have a holy de day dedicated to Mary or Paul. You could do tons of things as long as not, they're not forbidden. It, it really leaves man a huge area of autonomy. If one accepts this position, then logically there could be virtually an infinite variety of man-made innovations in churches, and one should expect dozens, if not hundreds, of different worship traditions and practices among confessing Protestants. Because what happens is somebody invents something. It becomes accepted by the, it, the elders pass it. It becomes accepted by the congregation, and then it becomes loved. They like it. They do it a long time. They like it. Why do you think people love Christmas so much? It's been around, it's been around since the 4th, 
fifth century, all over the place. And people fall in love with it because it's a long-standing tradition. This philosophy of worship is exactly what one finds in most conservative Dutch Reformed and Presbyterian churches today. There are churches that have the celebrate of slap-happy charismatic-style services with overhead projectors and rock bands, and there are high church sacramentalist-style worship services as well. You can find both, in the PCA and in the OPC. It used to be, I was in the OPC in the 70s. I was in the PCA in the 80s. I was in the RPC in the 90s. Uh, it used to be that the OPC was much more conservative than the PCA, and they expected you to basically have a piano and an organ, and that's it, and a hymnal. Well, that's long gone. Well, that started to change actually in the 70s. In 78 or so, there was an OPC minister in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania, who started, he started with the charismatic services. And his church got humongous. He had the biggest OPC church around. Because people are attracted to that. It's entertaining. It's fun. Those who are now considered old-fashioned have a hymn book with an organ or piano. Such churches may not like the rock and roll worship of some uh, other churches or high church Episcopal style worship of other churches, but without the regular principle, there's really no way to condemn such practices other than to appeal to very general principles. Well, you know, I think rock bands and drama groups and puppet shows and the pastor cracking jokes and all that, it's just not very reverent. It's not reverent enough for public worship. And that's basically the argument you used to hear as this kind of worship was taking over the OPC. It started, and it, it took over the PCA much quicker than the OPC, and then it started to take over the OPC. And then with the rise of James Jordan, and he's got many, many followers in the PCA, we see the rise of a Lutheran slash Episcopal worship within Presbyterian churches. Once human autonomy and invention is allowed in the public worship of God, then what kind of worship one attends really boils down to taste or personal preference. Okay, you cannot have uniformity under such principles. And of course, the Bible's not your sole standard anymore, is it? It's the Bible plus whatever human tradition has been accepted, which is, reminds us of what? Roman Catholicism. And there's a reason that the modern church growth-oriented evangelical churches that have rock bands, drama groups, performance art artists, uh, and very performance-oriented worship services are very popular, especially with young people. Without the regular principles restraint, worship becomes humanistic, man-centered, and sensuous. The liturgical, the high church liturgical worship of Romanism and, and the Eastern Orthodox churches is one direction it can go. And the other direction it can go is Las Vegas, Hollywood, and New York, and Broadway. And that's why evangelicalism has kind of followed that path, and a lot of Reformed people have followed the high church liturgical, liturgicalism of Rome. But they all have the one, same thing in common. It's all a tradition, it's not commanded, and it's humanistic. <clears throat> the pomp and outward glory of Romanistic worship and the crass carnal worship of church growth-oriented evangelical services are simply different manifestations of human autonomy. If, you, if you've ever been in a real cathedral, I mean a giant, one of these giant cathedrals, if you've ever been in one, uh, visit one. It's, it'll blow your mind. And they were designed to blow people's minds. They were looked at a building that connected you to heaven with these extremely tall roofs and the sculptures and the paintings. and They're absolutely amazing. But they have nothing to do with biblical worship. That's a, that's a circumstance. We just meet in, in a building that is conductive to hearing a good sermon and praising God. <clears throat> and the problem with this position is that it contradicts the biblical meaning of sola scriptura, that is, the Bible is our sole authority for faith and practice denies the sufficiency of scripture, and consequently allows human pragmatism, invention, and subjective opinions to be used to determine and flesh out what public worship ought to be. So there is a certain amount of human autonomy involved, and the only limiting factor is 
that nothing can be overtly sinful. And as we go on, I'll define things and flesh things out and help you to, and define terms. Let's look at the reform position. I, I, I had to contrast these other views uh, with the reform position so you would understand. Now, before we analyze how the Lutherans and Episcopalians deal with the Reformed view, which teaches that they are violating Sola Scriptura, we need to briefly define the Reformed position and examine it in the light of Scripture in order to contrast the different positions. The Reformed view is best set forth in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which says this. This is 21, section 1. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or in any way, any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So what this means is, is that the whole content of worship, the parts, the ordinances, the elements, the holy days, etc., is prescribed by God himself in his holy word. So if you want to do something, you've got to prove it from Scripture. That's a much more restrictive view than the idea that you can do anything you want as long as it's not explicitly forbidden. Do you want to have a holy day? That's, that's not the Christian Sabbath? Prove it. Do you want to have an extra sacrament? Prove it. Do you want to do this? Prove it. And if you can't prove it, you can't do it. That's, that's the Reformed position. And it's beautiful because it keeps worship... Gospel worship, simple, biblical, pure, and if it's followed faithfully and strictly, it's going to stay that way. The Belgic Confession confers in Article 7. We believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God. The whole manner of worship which God requires us is written in them. Now the word prescribed means that worship must be based on what God commands or requires in his word. The only lawful way to worship the true and living God is by his own appointment. We learn it from God, and then we simply obey it. We learn it, we have faith in it, we follow it, we obey it. Our worship must be authorized by Yahweh, otherwise it is unacceptable to him. Nadab and Abihu, they offered strange fire. There's nothing in the Bible about strange fire being forbidden. But God com condemned them and basically said, I didn't command this. What are you doing? I didn't command this. Now, in other words, what Scripture does not com command or authorize by logical inference from Scripture or approved historical example from the canon is automatically forbidden. This principle forces men to base worship solely on the exegesis or interpretation of Scripture this rule requires men to find specific biblical proof for all worship practices. And it is totally contrary to the idea common among Episcopalian apologists and modern churchmen who reject the regular principle that the Bible simply gives us general over... The person who's an expert at this is James Jordan. The Bible gives us these general overarching principles and we're to, to develop them. And it's interesting, if you go back and you read the debates of high church Episcopalians with people like John Owen back in the day, and their argument was, no, the Bible gives us very general blueprints, and it's, uh, it's up to us, churchmen, to fill in the details. And John Owen is, no, 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 the Bible gives us everything. It gives us the, the, the general principles and the specifics. We're not to add anything of our own. They want ecclesiastical leaders to fill in the details and then put in practice the specifics. There are general truths in Scripture regarding worship, that is true, but there are also detailed, specific rules, elements, and principles as well. The historic Reformed position emphatically rejects the Lutheran position, as well as the declension of modern Reformed churches, that certain religious holy days and some of the content of worship belongs to the sphere of adiaphora, which means things indifferent. If you meet a Reformed person today, and you need to know this, and they're not following the regular principle, but they say they adhere to the regular principle, whenever they do something that's not required by Scripture, or not taught in Scripture, not authorized by Scripture, not prescribed by Scripture, what do they always say? Well, they say it's secular or adiaphora. 
and the RPCNA. I was in the RPCNA for many, 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 many years. And virtually everybody celebrates Christmas. And their argument is, well, that's a secular day. It has nothing to do with religious things. Secular. The regular principle, it doesn't fall under, it's like the 4th of July. It has nothing to do with the regular principle. Well, let's see. It's called Christ Mass. It's said to be Christ's birthday. And we're celebrating Christ's birthday. And they're saying that's not religious. You see how people, <laughs> when people want to sin, they're very expert at deceiving themselves. Self-deception. <clears throat> this attempt to declare certain human inventions and traditions permissible because they are supposedly neither commanded or forbidden is totally arbitrary. It is simply a clever excuse for clinging to human inventions and traditions in worship. And we're going to define circumstances in a moment, but let me just read. The Lutherans actually put this into writing. Lutheran scholars in the 16th century realized that much of what they were doing in the sphere of worship had no real proof from Scripture and therefore was really a violation of sola scriptura. They understood that very early. Consequently, they arbitrarily labeled all human additions as something adiaphora. That is something that's not a part of worship. Okay, early we read the, uh, the, the first confession, 1530. Here's the formula of Concord, which is 15, first 1576, and then they reworked it. It came out in 1584. Article 10 of Ecclesiastical Ceremonies, which are commonly called audiophor or things indifferent. Um, here's what it says. Ecclesiastical ceremonies, which are commonly called audiophor or things indifferent, these are also arisen among the divines of the Augsburg Confession, that's 1530, 1530. A controversy touching ecclesiastical ceremonies or rites which are neither enjoined nor forbidden by the word of God, but have been introduced into the church merely for the sake of order and seemliness. Sound doctrine and confession touching this article, Roman numeral one. For the better taking away this controversy, Okay, there were people that said, hey, we're being inconsistent with Sola Scriptura. What are we doing? All These things are not in the Bible. What are we doing all these things? And here's their argument why we're going to keep doing them. Roman numeral number one, for the better taking away of this controversy, we believe, teach, and confess with unanimous consent that ceremonies or ecclesiastical rites, such as in the word of God, are neither commanded nor forbidden, but have only been instituted for the sake of order and seemliness. In other words, uh, They've been instituted by the church authorities. They're, they're not something that we're taught to do in Scripture. Are of themselves neither divine worship nor even any part of divine worship. For it is written, Matthew 15, 9, In vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So they acknowledge Christ's teaching on the regular principle, Christ fully accepted it. He refused to do any traditions, even washing his hands, which is a ritual. They acknowledge it, but then they say, well, anything we've added, it's not part of worship. It's just not part of worship. Well, that, is that totally arbitrary? <laughs> Roman numeral two. We believe, teach, and confess that it is permitted to the church of God anywhere on earth and at whatever time agreeable to occasion to change such ceremonies of God and most suited to her edification. Okay, so they're not commanded. We arbitrarily declare their audiophora, and we can change them at will because they're not taught in Scripture. Once again, totally arbitrary. Roman numeral five. We believe, teach, and confess that one church ought not to condemn another because it observes more or less of external ceremonies, which the Lord has not instituted, provided only there be consent among them in doctrine and all the articles thereof and in the true use of the sacraments. Let me stop for a moment. So, as long as your view of the sacraments is the same as Martin Luther's and our Augsburg Confession, and as long as you believe in justification and faith, you're cool. But don't condemn another church who's doing a bunch of weird things that you're not doing. Because we've just declared this as an ecclesiastical body to be adiaphora. It's not a part, and they're, and they're saying it's not even a part of worship. It's not even a part of worship. Continuing, we repudiate and condemn the following false dogmas as repugnant to the word of God. Roman numeral one, 
that human traditions and constitutions and things ecclesiastical are of themselves to be accounted as divine worship. Or at least as a part of divine worship. So they're saying our traditions are, you can do them, just make sure you don't regard them as divine worship. No, they, they're done on Sunday, they're done on the, the Christian Sabbath, they're done during the worship service. Uh, they're required, people are required to attend, yet we don't regard them as part of divine worship. Now you say that's crazy, but that's essentially what the, the, the Dutch have done after they declined. Um, I knew a group of people that left the RPCNA, this is many, many years ago, so none of these people will know what I'm talking about. But many, many years ago, there was a group of people, a whole bunch of, like, four or five families left the RPCNA church in Phoenix, Arizona, because they were fed up with the feminism and the liberal garbage going on in the RPCNA. And they tried to join Joel Beakey's group, Netherlands Reformed, or whatever it's called, Heritage Reformed, I forget. They're very strict. They're actually very good on most matters. They're King James, Psalmody, although they're Salter's horrible translation. And uh, they said, we'll join you guys. We want to join, but we're not going to follow the church calendar because we believe it's not taught in Scripture. And they were flat out told, well, you can't join unless you have to follow the church calendar. We have uniformity of worship. All the old Protestant churches had uniform, most of them had uniformity of worship. And the strict Dutch, like the Protestant Reformed churches, their worship services are identical. They're not allowed to, they're not allowed to bring an overhead projector. They all do the exact same thing. So on the one hand, uh, and I, I knew somebody who asked Joel Beakey, well, why do you celebrate Christmas and these holy days? And he says, well, it's just our tradition. It's, it's, not, it's, just, it's just a tradition. It's, 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 it's not something, uh, you know, it's considered purely a diaphora. Yet, if you don't do it, you can't join our denomination. So that's an explicit contradiction. The church invented it. The church puts it in public worship. The church requires it, so you have no liberty of conscience. But they say it's not public worship and it's adiaphora. That's that's crazy. It's explicitly a contradiction. Roman numeral two. When ceremonies and constitutions of this, of this kind are by a sort of coercion obtruded upon the church as necessary, and that contrary to Christian liberty, which the Church of Christ has an external manners of this sort, so they're saying these things can't be coercive because they're not part of worship. But they are. Let's say like the PCA. I, I went to Boyce's church. He had a big giant Christmas service every year. I went there to meet ladies. That's where I met my wife. I didn't go there because I liked his preaching. I thought it was weak. Although sometimes it was quite good. But uh, they had a big giant Christmas service with candles and decorations and the whole nine yards. Well, that's on the, if it falls on the Sabbath, and of course they had a Christmas service every year, you, you, you're supposed to attend church on the Sabbath, especially if you're a member. But if you regard Christmas as a human innovation, which of course it is, and it comes from Roman Catholicism and paganism, uh, you, you can't attend that church on the Sabbath. And you can't attend that church on Easter when they have a big Easter service too. And so on the one hand, they say it's audio offer and they say it's not, coercive, but on the other hand, it certainly is coercive. So it's a big mess. Of course, the Lutheran statement is very strange and contradictory. On the one hand, they acknowledge that soul scripture applies to the sphere of worship and even quote Matthew 15, 9. The Episcopalians won't do that. The Lutherans do. But then they admit that they have ceremonies and ecclesiastical rites that are not commanded or authorized by scripture. Their human traditions and innovations are said to be lawful because they are regarded as not part of divine worship. But religious ceremonies and ecclesiastical rites by their very nature or definition are aspects of worship. Why do you think they call it a ceremony or a rite? Those are religious terms. This tactic is used by corrupt Reformed churchmen today. The aspects of worship that are not authorized are arbitrarily labeled as mere circumstances of worship and thus declared to be lawful. This is how Reformed and Presbyterian churches today justify papal holy days such as Christmas. In addition, strict Reformed churchmen, Dutch Reformed churchmen will argue that the church calendar, which is made up of man-made extra-biblical holy days, it's almost absolutely certain that Christ was not born in December. They say it's adiaphora. 
It is a church tradition that is only circumstantial. But they require their churches to follow the church calendar, calendar which is ecclesiastical coercion. If you don't follow the church calendar, you're, you're going to be kicked out. They may not excommunicate you, but you'll be out of the denomination. You'll be kicked out. And consequently, in practice, they deny their assertion that such things are merely audiophora. The Lutherans and backslidden Reformed churchmen cannot have it both ways. So what have we noted? Their defense of human traditions is both arbitrary and inconsistent. And that's a bad place to be in. The Roman Catholics and the Episcopalians are much more consistent. And they say, yeah, we're, we're allowed to make up stuff. We're allowed to violate sola scriptura. But that's not the position of the Lutherans. Everyone will acknowledge that God must be worshipped according to his word. Right? Everybody says that. James Jordan says that. Doug Wilson says that. Peter Lightheart says that. Only Romanists and Anglicans openly deny, openly argue that the church, the ecclesiastical rulers have the authority to simply make things up if they are deemed useful and edifying. That's in the 39 articles. I was going to put it in the back of here and I forgot. I was going to read it to you. The Roman Catholic Church, however, uh, you know, and they say as long as, these, as long as the church elders think these things are edifying and useful, they're allowed to add them. They're allowed to make stuff up as long as we think it's useful. What does that do? Well, you've got your source of authority being scripture, and you've got your source of authority being churchmen. You have two sources of authority. One's the Bible, and one's these churchmen who make stuff up. And what is that? Well, it's an explicit denial of sola scriptura, the Bible alone. The Roman Catholic Church says this, and, and this is a Roman Catholic Catechism, uh, 1994. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. End of quote. The Episcopal Church says, I'll just I have a brief quote, quote, The Church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies, yet it is not lawful for the Church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. That's on the authority of the Church, Article 20 of the authority of the Church. But without carefully submitting to the biblical details arrived at by careful exegesis of specific texts of Scripture, <clears throat> Such a statement is not honest or biblical. Such a statement is not honest or biblical. What do people do when they want to sin? What do people do when they want to engage in human autonomy and ethics or human autonomy and worship? What do they do? They make very clever excuses. People do it, you know, evangelicals have done it who committed adultery and left their husbands or wives. Oh, I had to, Amy Grant, I had to follow my heart. I was in love. Which, that's the same thing Woody Allen said when he committed incest. People are, uh, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? People make excuses for human additions and sinful behavior. Without carefully submitting to the biblical details arrived at by a careful exegesis of Scripture, such a statement is not honest or biblical. When we speak of Christian ethics, we do not allow or tolerate the ignoring, disobeying, or contradicting of specific ethical imperatives based on some supposed general principle, do we? Well, who does that? That's what modernists do. That's what politicians do. They take a very vague, humanistic, unbiblical concept of love as their overarching principle and they use it to overthrow the many specific commands dealing with sexual ethics. Marriage, the role of the state in redistribution, homosexuality, all these things. Well, Christ loves the homosexual. How can you condemn his behavior? Well, the Bible specifically does. You don't take an overarching principle and use it to eliminate the specific. The specific defines and fleshes out the overarching principle. So when James Jordan and his followers try to appeal to these general principles to overturn the clear teaching of Scripture, they're doing the exact same thing that secular humanists are doing. In the sphere of Christian worship, the details flesh out and give meaning to the general overarching biblical principles. Yet for some reason, Reformed churchmen act like modernists when it comes to worship. 
The minute details and specific commands are set aside while men boldly declare that they must be that God must be worshipped according to God's word. Steve Schlissel, all these men who deny the regular principle, we believe in an informed worship principle. We believe in an, a, we, we follow the general teaching of Scripture, and then what do they do? They ignore the specifics. We're going to stop there. We'll, we'll take a break and come back because I have a lot more. But I had to get into history so you kind of understand what's going on. The most important, now obviously justification by faith, but well, Calvin put it this way. Calvin said the two central pillars of Christendom are, of Christianity, the doctrine of salvation, justification by faith, or the sufficiency of the atonement of Jesus Christ, it's perfection and sufficiency, and sola scriptura as applied to worship or the regular principle of worship. He said those are the pillars of Christianity. And today one of those pillars is fallen down. It's no longer held. There's no distinction. And we're talking about the vast majority of Reformed churches. Hey, if you can find a free church continuing or a free Presbyterian church, uh, have fun. Good luck. I mean, well, there's no such thing as luck, but have fun. They're, they're few and far between. They're mostly in Scotland. Uh, we live in a day, a, a time where the vast majority of churches are totally corrupt in worship. We'll take a break. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the achievements of our spiritual forefathers and their confessions and their covenants. Illuminate our minds, open our eyes, give us illumination, Lord, to understand the importance of this truth so that we would consistently apply it to our own lives, our own churches, and teach it to others to make sure that this continues, that the achievements of our covenanted forefathers continues as it was. In Jesus' name, amen.